science reinforces our biblical beliefs, it doesn't lead us out. And science and archaeology and doesn't lead us away from the Bible. The more we dig out of the ground, the more we study, the more we realize the Bible is actually true. What's going on with the excavations at Tal El Haman and the implications for understanding what happened in the biblical Sodom and what would its impact be across the globe? Hi, and welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and today, Joel and I are talking to Dr. Stephen Collins about that very question. Joel, would you introduce our guest and uh, and welcome Stephen to our podcast. Good to be here. Yeah, Stephen, it's so great to uh, to have you. And I'm so grateful uh, having just gotten to spend some time with you here in Jerusalem, interviewing you for a two-part series we'll be doing pretty soon on TBN, my Rosenberg Report show. Look, I, I want to make sure everybody in our audience understands what Carl Muller just said in the intro, because you, you really have to hear this. This is the man who has discovered the biblical site of the city of Sodom, and Gomorrah, actually, that were wiped out in the book of Genesis, and yet most people in the world don't believe even existed. Many people think that, even many liberal theologians don't believe that Sodom and Gomorrah was a real thing. Maybe it was allegorical or metaphorical, but Jesus spoke of Sodom and Gomorrah as very real places. In fact, he used Sodom to talk about, like, if this is how God judged people in the past, do you really think you're He's not going to do this in the future. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and, and and Dr. Collins will work us through all that. But this is one of the biggest archaeological discoveries of our time, maybe of ever. I mean, it certainly is up there with uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and some and the discoveries, which would be non-biblical, but of King Tut and other things. Why? Because this is a place that most people think is mythical, mm. or Christians think. Well, I mean, I guess it could have been a real thing, but I mean, I, you know. We have no evidence of it. There's no archaeological evidence. So, I, you know, maybe it's maybe it's not a real thing. Those were two real cities, and they have now been found. Wow. The mainstream media doesn't get it. They don't care. Why? Because if you accept the idea that Sodom and Gomorrah were real <laughs> and that God judged it and destroyed it, whoa, now they dive, dive. Like it, <laughs> yeah. all the implications around that biblical story come to play. God is real. God has standards. If you break them, there is a consequence. And homosexuality is yeah. just one of many things that God is not good with. All of that goes against the modern grain. Dr. Stephen Collins, thank you for joining us. And uh, so let me just start off with that. But you are an actual trained archaeologist. You, you, you've you worked in the Middle East for a long time. And you've been working on this site. This is not like, oh, I discovered it uh, yesterday with a toothpick and a, and a toothbrush. And I think I might have found something I want a headline. No, no, this is this is 20 years in the making. So talk to us about how you first thought maybe the the Sodom that a famous American evangelical archaeologist thought, no, that's over here. And everybody thought that who cared about it at all or believed it was real. And you started to doubt that. I want you to just start with, to take us into the story, and then we'll unpack it piece by piece. Good. Thank you, Joel. Good to be with you. Almost everybody, uh, as you alluded to, almost all scholars, evangelical particularly, um, put Sodom toward the south end of the Dead Sea. It was just, if you've ever been to the south end of the Dead Sea, which I have and you have many times, it looks like a place God would have destroyed. I mean, sort of, so people sort of <laughs> built their own etiological <laughs> legend around that that piece of geography and because it's kind of ugly and dry and salty and nothing um, grows there, know, nothing like swims it, there. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It seems, seems like it kind of fits the bill. And I didn't have a problem with that. And all my early career, uh, you know, it just, I didn't really look into it. I didn't. The problem that, that I, I ran into eventually was I read the text. I actually got into Genesis 13, which is the very detailed geographical map that takes a person to Sodom. I mean, that's what it's there for. And, um, once I read that, it became very difficult to me um, to even think about going south because as I read through that so many times, and I, I delved into a major study of that passage and, and other passages, uh, Genesis 14 is part of that too. 
everything about the text locates Sodom north and east of the Dead mm. Sea. And I came to find out later that all the uh, explorer scholars uh, of the 19th century who went into that region uh, with a Bible, looking for Bible sites, always put Sodom on the north end of the Dead Sea. But something changed. What was it that changed everybody's thinking to lock in as, oh, well, that person knows? Yeah. Well, uh, number one, uh, hardly anybody had ever given much of a look to the north end of the Dead Sea archaeologically. So nobody really knew what was there. W.F. Albright, who was the most uh, influential archaeological scholar of the 20th century, uh, came along, and uh, you have to really understand the power of his scholarship. I mean, he could make or break anybody's career mm-hmm. if he liked them or didn't like them. That's how uh, much influence he had. And so, he'd Albright been right, uh, he discovered Al- big things, and yeah. he'd been right about so much. Oh, right? sure. And that's where yeah. I mean, he, he, he's no he he's known by everybody. He's the father of biblical archaeology, mm-hmm. and so um, Albright comes along, and um, he decides that there aren't uh, any archaeological sites in the south. Dead Sea region that could possibly associate with the date of Abraham. They're all hundreds and hundreds of years too early. So what Albright did was he decided, well, possibly they're underneath that south shallow basin of the Dead Sea. And maybe there was an earthquake at the time of the destruction of Sodom, and maybe the land sank and the Dead Sea waters flowed in over them. And that was his theory. And that was picked up by his protege, G.E. Wright. And uh, pretty much the rest is history. Everybody went to the south into the Dead Sea. Now, there were a few people like... Um, Bryant Wood and some others who who went over to Babadra, which is a site, an old early Bronze Age site down in that area. Problem with that one is it was destroyed around 2500 BC, which is many, many centuries prior to the birth of Abraham. Mm-hmm. I don't care when you date Abraham, it's uh, way too early. So um, when I began to research it and looked at that, I said, you know, none of this is right because I don't see anything in the biblical text that would remotely locate Sodom at the south end of the Dead Sea. So um, if you like me to, I can unpack that little piece of geography yeah, I think you should. I as think to why. Um, yeah. Because, because yeah. I think, let's just, again, frame the puzzle here. You're going to give us a lot of pieces of this 5,000-piece puzzle. But as we frame it, I just want to make sure that people are tracking with us. The first thing we're saying is that anybody who doesn't believe in the Bible definitely doesn't believe that Sodom and Gomorrah even existed. So that's the first thing. So almost all uh, secular or non-biblical archaeologists aren't even looking for it because why would you look? It's like looking for the Shire or Mordor because you love Lord of the Rings, but everyone else is going, yeah, but that's fiction. That's that was a fantasy of Tolkien that like has nothing. Why are you spending time looking for something that doesn't exist? Okay, mm-hmm. that's the. So you got yeah. you got uh, people who don't believe the Bible. Then you got people who do believe the Bible, but they don't believe that Sodom was real. Liberal theology. But then what you're saying is the dean, that the master, uh, the most trusted and respected biblical Christian archaeologist didn't ever look for it exactly find it but his but he believed it was in the south side and it was just covered with water or had sunk or something so people thought well he knows so why even bother looking for it and you thought that for many years taught that to students that you would take on tours and then you're like as you're reading the actual bible you're like that doesn't actually match up with what the text is saying. Am I, am I getting that right so far? Yes, yes. And let me give you the bottom okay. line. And, and, for, and for the listeners, the bottom line is this. Ancient writers, regardless of who they are, I don't care if they're Babylonian or Egyptian or they're Hittite, Canaanite, ancient writers never, ever invented fictitious mm-hmm. geographies. And you alluded to that a minute ago. I mean, there's in the ancient world, there's no such thing as like, you know, Middle Earth or Five Acre Wood or stuff like that. It just they, it doesn't exist. It was not part of the ancient mind to put a fictitious geography together. Uh, so the bottom line is this. Whether the stories in the book of Genesis are real, the storylines are real, and or, or the, uh, the characters are fact or fiction, all of those stories are layered over an actual real-world geography. That's the bottom line. That There is not a scholar in the world who can overturn what I just said. Uh, they know that as a, as a solid right, fact. Because the writers of the Bible are saying these things really did happen, and therefore mm-hmm. here's as many details historically, geographically, factually that I can give you that you can verify so that you understand that I'm telling the truth about these things. Therefore, I have a higher likelihood of telling you the truth about the central story, whatever that story right. is. Right. And they were intimately familiar with the geography they were talking about. They knew this geography. They had seen it. They had walked it. They understood it. And when they wrote, whoever wrote the story, 
uh, wherever the story comes from. Now, Moses is obviously collating this thing right. together, I think, but it's probably com- coming from an earlier source. They're very careful to mark out the geography with minute details. This is Genesis 13, verse 12 verses. They wrote that passage specifically to take you to Sodom. And so when I began to look at that passage, it was so obvious to me, and I, I always um, talk about some of my friends who who locate Sodom toward the south end of the Dead Sea as being sort of geographically challenged, because if you understand the geography, it's very clear. So let me one, two, three, okay. four it here. Let, let me put the nuts and bolts together. Number one says, Abraham came down from Haran into Canaan, and he pitched his tent on a hill between Bethel and Ai, where he built an altar to Yahweh. Now, that's 12 miles right. north we of We know Jerusalem. where that is. <laughs> we absolutely know where that is. And then it says he went to the Negev, and then he went to Egypt, and then he came back to the same hill, to the same location between Bethel and Ai, where he had built an altar to God. And then it says Lot came to him. That's, that's the first thing. We know where that hill is located. Number two, it says that Lot came to Abraham one day and he said, you know, we're having some trouble with our flocks and herds and our, and our shepherds. There's too many of us for the land that we occupy. We need to separate. And so Abraham says, good idea. So um, the, the second piece of the geography is it says Lot looked up from that location and saw something. So number one, they're at Bethel and I. Number two, where's Lot when he lifts up his eyes? At Bethel and I. Number three, what does Lot see when he lifts up his eyes? It says he looked over and he saw that the entire circle, Kikar, disc of the Jordan, was well-watered like the Garden of God and like the land of Egypt. And uh, those two things are very clear. Garden of God, it says a river ran through it. That's Genesis 2. A river ran through it and it was watered by springs mm-hmm. as well. And and that is a description yeah, of that area. Right now. Of the right. sea. <laughs> yeah. And, and it also says that it was watered like Egypt. Well, how's Egypt watered? Water. The Nile overflowed its banks in the in the Delta region of, uh, near the Mediterranean annually, and the Egyptians would plant uh, their crops behind the newly deposited silt as the waters receded. That's exactly what happened in antiquity in the Jordan River. It would overflow its banks to several kilometers out on each side of the river, nor- just north of the Dead Sea, and they would plant their crops uh, behind, behind the receding waters. Parenthetically, for, for those yeah. who are trying to track all this, you know, that connection to the, the Nile River as an illustration of how rich and fertile the Jordan River Valley was, would be reinforced by the fact that Moses, whether he wrote these specific lines or was collating it and putting it together under God's direction. If there's one thing Moses knew was the power of the Nile, that's where he lived. That's right. That's the whole Moses story. He gets Egypt. Yeah, and the fact that that little statement is there, Joel, that 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 observation is made, that it's watered like Egypt, puts this writer in Egypt, and it's probably Moses. Yeah, right. And then you think, okay, so and he and I know you're about to take us to the next stage, but I just want to make it clear again for the readers to make all the connections. If Lot wants land that's rich and beautiful and fertile. Why would he go down to what the Bible calls the salt sea? Why would you be at the end? There is no fresh water there. That's why there's no people there. Now there's some hotels down there because you can pipe the water in. But there's literally no reason to go build a city, much less a massive empire of a city, down where there's no fresh water. You would have to be along the Jordan River Valley and and north of the – Salt Sea, the, what we now call the Dead Sea. Otherwise, you're insane, and your civilization is going to last yes. about ten days at best, right? Okay, back to you. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And that's why the the all the all the sites that were down at the south end of the Dead Sea all went belly up uh, in in the climate change that happened around 2500 BC, and they didn't survive. So there aren't any cities down there from the time of Abraham or even the time of David. Nobody built down there. The the climate just went south. Well. So it says from Bethel and I, which is north of Jerusalem, overlooking this uh, southern part of the Jordan Valley, he looks over and sees all of this wonderful land. And then the key here is that in the fourth point is he traveled eastward. Mm. It says he traveled eastward and pitched his tent as far as Sodom. In the Hebrew text, it's just very simple. Ad Sedom, as far as Sodom or unto Sodom, which had to be on the other side of the river. And it's so it says Lot, Abraham stayed in the land of Canaan which was his inheritance from God. And Lot went over and crossed the river and went into the land of the Kikar. In fact, the Bible calls it, Genesis 19, 
Hayataki Kar, the land of the Kikar. Mm. And so this is a, an identifiable cultural uh, setting Just for with, with a great city-state. Kikar, yeah. when we have traffic circles here, and, and Israel is very much like New Jersey, we do a lot of traffic circles, and so they're called a kikar. So we think of it as circle, and it can be circle. It's really like a loaf of bread. So some loaves of bread are, are, are round in the Middle East and elsewhere, and some are more um, you know, oblong, but whichever – the point is the way it's used culturally here. That word basically means this, like a, like a, like a round area. So it's describing this region of fertility north of the Salt Sea, where there was no fertility. That's a great point. The word kikar is used in the Old Testament sixty-eight times. Fifty-five of those times, it either means a talent, which is a flat circular ingot of metal, flat disc of metal. Or it refers to a, um, a pita bread or a tortilla. <laughs> so talents or tortillas, 55 out of 68 times that that word appears in the Old Testament. The other 13 times, it refers to this particular piece of geography, which is north of the Dead Sea, which if you go there, uh, it is a big green circle. Wow. It widens out wider than the Jordan Valley coming in from the north, and it's wider than the Dead Sea Valley going south from it. Wow. And so... Um, it's very, very clear. By the way, the word high yarden, the Jordan, means the descending. Mm-hmm. And we could say the descending of what? The descending of the fresh water. It's a fresh water catchment. It's a fresh water system. Well, might you say that the descent or the descending, the Jordan, would end when it reaches the lowest spot on the face <laughs> of the earth, which would be the Dead Sea, right. the north end of the Dead Sea. Uh- And so, in fact, the Bible says this. Here's what the Old Testament says about the Jordan. It says, the Jordan ends, terminates, at the bay of the Dead Sea, at the mouth of the Jordan, below Pisgah, which is Nebo. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's at the north end of the Dead Sea. Mm -hmm. And so it's very clear that when Lot looked over and saw that the whole circular plain of the Jordan was well watered, and then he traveled eastward, that he is in this land, which is lush, and green and rich. All right, hold that thought. Yeah. I, I want to pitch it back to Carl. Um, yes. And we now have identified why you thought, okay, love Albright. He's incredibly respected, but the text doesn't lead you to the south. It leads you northeast. I'm guessing in a few moments uh, we're going to get into, okay, then wh- how did you go there and what did you find? But I, I want to make sure Carl keeps us on the path here because uh, I know we got a break coming up, but maybe you have questions you want to ask as well, Carl. Yeah, no, this is fascinating. And Dr. Collins, thank you so much. We really want to go from here too, literally and figuratively, to the site, what you found there, and then probably spend some time in the second half of this podcast really asking the questions, what does this mean? And how can we really understand this from the standpoint of where we live right now? But we're going to take a break right now and uh, we'll come back in just a minute. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Our verse of the day today is found in Luke chapter 17, verses 28 to 30. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Our prayer requests today are number one, Pray that more people in the Middle East and around the world, in the epicenter, would come to know Jesus and turn from their ungodly lifestyles. And second, 
Pray that more people would come to know God and be convinced about the validity of the Bible through various evidence presented as the Word is preached to them. Well, we're back. Dr. Stephen Collins, this is a fascinating understanding of how you came to understand where the location of the biblical city of Sodom is. And, and Joel, it's, I don't know about you, but I'm just like, I'm like hanging on every word. It's almost like a Indiana Jones kind of moment here. Tell us, Dr. Collins, if you would, once you determined that this was the location, what kind of things gave you more evidence that this was the actual city of Sodom? I mean, it makes sense from what you've described location-wise, but but what was there and what, what have you found? Well, well, it was a little uh, worrisome uh, <laughs> from the get-go because uh, based on Genesis 13, we had literally been able to draw a theoretical map from that. And so we had placed it where we thought it should be, opposite the city of Jericho, way over there, equal distant from the river uh, on the east side of the Jordan, northeast of the Dead Sea. Uh, that was pretty easy to do. The problem was when we looked at the... Um, the archaeological site maps published by American archaeologists and Israelis and Europeans, that piece of real estate was blank. Mm. It was almost completely blank. I think they had one site on there, which was basically not even uh, um, a very important one, uh, really. And um, so I'm thinking, now, wait a minute. Um, this is a little troublesome. You know, I could be wrong. Am I reading the text wrong? I mean, I really had, sure. had to rethink, go back and look at it and read it again. And I said, no, no, I'm right. I see it clearly. The text says what it says, and I'm going with it. Well, at that point, we had to take our theoretical map, get on an airplane, took a small team with us, and went over to look and see exactly what was there. So now you're in the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. You've got to get their permission and go find a specific site to explore. Exactly. We're not asking anybody's permission at this point. I mean, we're just coming over as essentially tourists and we're coming over to look and see what's there. But we did go up to Amman, went, went to Acor, got, got in the library, started looking at reports. And after we spent uh, a, a day looking at the Jordanian archaeological reports, we started to feel a whole lot better because not only now did we not have a blank map, the map was now filled in by 14 known significant archaeological sites in that area. Why nobody else outside of Jordan knew about these things is a, is a whole other story in itself. But the sites were there. So we had to rent a car, uh, rent a van, take our little group down there and go site to site to site to site looking. Now, what year was this? Just let's give some context. This was 2001. And um, I, I had run at the ACOR Library. Uh, we had run into a little book by Rami Khoury, who's a an Arab journalist who is, um, for the last part of his career, is based out of uh, Lebanon, Beirut. But Rami had written a book, and he it was called Archaeological Sites of the Jordan Valley. I'm going, whoa, there you go. And I'm looking through there. And so I come to his uh, map and the sites of the southern Jordan Valley, where I'm thinking Sodom should be located. And he has uh, each one of the archaeological sites, 14 of them in this area that we're looking at, he has a little a paragraph description of each one of them because he's been there. He went and checked it out and looked. But one of them stood out. It was Tal el-Hammam, and his entry for that starts like this. Tal el-Hammam is the largest archaeological ruin in the entire Jordan Valley. And that more or less caught my attention. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, that looks so. Because I personally you, saved you that for know last. That, that Lot is picking an area that already has a city, a large and populated city, and all this agriculture can sustain a large number of people. Exactly. And the Bible was very clear because Sodom, you know, Sodom's always mentioned first in the lists. Uh, it's the only one mentioned by itself ever in the stories. And the king of Sodom, Bera, is the only one that has a voice. And so Sodom is presented by the biblical writer as the largest Bronze Age city north and east of the Dead Sea. Okay. Now, for time's sake, we do have to accelerate. So what I want you to do is talk about, okay, now you've got 20 years of excavation. But the for me, when I was talking to you uh, recently for my TBN show, uh, the Rosenberg Report, I think there's a piece that we've got to unpack here. I want you to mention a number of things that you found. But I think the biggest thing here is what you – essentially stumbled upon in terms of how this city, which was huge, was destroyed. Yes. And of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sodom is big. It has a lot of satellite towns associated with it. In fact, we don't just have Sodom and Gomorrah. We have Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zavoyim, all the cities associated with it. And then some, 
but we know that Tal Hammam, Sodom, was the largest continuously occupied Bronze Age city in the entire region. And so uh, that fits the biblical description. We found temples. We found massive fortifications, a huge gate, gateway. In fact, there are two gateways, one for the upper city, one for the lower city. The massive palace, the footprint of, the, of Beres Palace at Sodom is a little bit larger than the White House. Okay, <laughs> It's a really big palace. And so um, uh, domestic areas, everything that a major top flight, top tier city in the Bronze Age would have, Tal Hammam has in spades. And so uh, it's a fabulous, fabulous place. But what was most interesting, maybe not most interesting, but it sort of layers on the biblical story. I mean, it was destroyed. The whole civilization, the Bible says, was destroyed in the blink of an eye by fire and burning stone from out of the sky. So so, so even if you found a big city that's sort of in the right location, there would have to be evidence of cataclysmic destruction. You can't just, you know... it right. can't just it be like, oh, that's a nice city. Let's pretend that's it, right? Yeah. Exactly. And I'm not an astrophysicist. I'm not a geologist. I'm an archaeologist. So, But we had a team. They found out that we were discovering very interesting what we call melt products mm. at the site. Uh, some surfaces of pottery melted into glass. Uh, mud bricks melted. Plaster melted. And some of these indicators were were that these were temperatures that were far beyond anything terrestrial, way hotter than any like volcanic magma. We're talking boiled zircons, which happen at about 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, we're talking about temperatures that are sort of off the charts. And at one point, you're like one of the volunteers, like I think I think it was a woman, sort of hands up this piece, which is sort of green, I think, on one side and and – and, and what happens at that moment? Because that becomes a tipping point in this story. Yeah, the guy she handed it up to her actually tossed it up because we were pretty okay. deep. Um, tosses it up, and he catches it. Now, he happens to be a scientist, a nuclear physicist, who worked on the Manhattan Project and was there when they blew up the first wow. atomic bomb in New Mexico Trinitite. down near Alamogordo at what's called the Trinity site. And you're based in New Mexico, just for context. Uh, you know, you're, yes, you're a professor yes, of yeah, archaeology exactly. in, at Trinity, uh, which, is in, uh, which is in New Mexico. Yes. New Mexico. Right. And so he he looks at this thing and he, he sees this greenish glass on the surface of this piece of Middle Bronze Age pottery. And he said, this looks like Trinitite. And I had never heard that word before, Joel, never heard it. And I said, what is that? He said, well, you know, no, I didn't know. <laughs> you know, it's that melted glass underneath the tower where the first atomic bomb blew up at the Trinity site. And uh, so the heat just sort of melts the sand, turning it into this green glass. He said, this is what it looks like. Uh, I was there, and I, I, have, I know this stuff. I said, well, that's interesting. And, you know, we marked it, registered it. And, the, and the, one of the first things we did when we got back to the States was we took that particular piece down to New Mexico Tech to uh, Dr. David Burley down there, materials, uh, PhD material science. And he sliced it up and took it and had it analyzed at the USGS laboratory there under the uh, glorified electron microscope they call a, uh, a Kamika 100. And um, wow, the, the analysis was amazing. In essence, uh, it went like this. The scientist doing the test looked at the piece we had left over. Now, he'd sliced it up and made test samples out of it. But she held it in her hand. She looked at it. She, she says, oh, nice piece of Trinitite. And, and there she repeats the same word. And I said, flip it over. She says, oh, it's a piece of pottery. Where did this come from? And, of course, she had the, the lab sheets and all that with Tal Hammam's name on it. But the whole idea was that everybody who looked at it, every scientist who looked at it, said, this looks just like it's it's a dead ringer for Trinitite. Meaning, just again, I, I just want to make sure our audience is tracking with you because there's a lot of details here. But what you're saying is to both the nuclear scientists that was with you in Jordan at the site of the excavation who had worked at the Manhattan atomic bomb site and now this U.S. geological survey expert – what they're telling you is this looks just like something that would be found at a place where you release an atomic bomb. That's what you're saying to us. Yeah, right, right, exactly. In other words, the the temperature index required uh, and the flash of heat required to create trinitite is exactly what was required to create this particular thing. And that's not the <laughs> only piece. We find it all over the site. Uh, in fact, one one season we wound up with buckets and buckets of of melted mud bricks, just and they're blown all through the destruction matrix, which is a meter, meter and a half thick. We're talking about three, four, five feet thick, and uh, everything is churned into it. It's it's the most violent destruction matrix that I've ever but seen. But also, if I understand our discussion correctly, it's only on one side. It, it's like it happened yeah. in an instant of time. 
it should have made the entire you know you should basically should have a piece of glass not a piece of pottery with glass on the outside like if you were in new mexico at a at a nuclear blast the whole thing would be glass right yeah it would you know it, it these kinds of blasts are very fast they they happen for just seconds or less than seconds and so um usually the melt is superficial it's on the surface we have another piece it's the neck of a jar and it's actually the glass is boiled up on one side. It's actually frothed up. It got so hot. But as you go around the curve, it diminishes, and the other side is perfectly normal. So it's obvious that it was coming from one side. And uh, so we have quite a bit of indicators, uh, many indicators. What did that, that tell you as you pieced all this together? Well, you know, and it wouldn't matter, uh, Joel, what I say about it because I, I'm an archaeologist. But we had a, a, a group called the Comet Research Group. They they test for and they study comet and asteroid impacts, okay? That's what they do. They got a hold of this thing, 21 scientists who eventually published a paper. Now, they've been working on our site, taking samples independently from us, looking at samples and taking uh, samples from around the region and at our site through the destruction layer above it, in it, and below it for um, control. And uh, they just published in 2001, in 2001, September, They published a very long, detailed report in Nature Scientific Report. I read most of it. They lost me uh, in some parts because it's so technical. But the conclusion is fascinating. Tell us what the punchline is of this. uh, Basically, you've been peer-reviewed by people who study comets and asteroids and their impact on Earth. Yes. And so uh, it's a peer-reviewed article. And um, what it concludes is is that Tal al-Hammam, toward the end of the Middle Bronze Age, time of Abraham, was destroyed by a powerful, what's called a meteoritic bolide airburst event. This is a piece of space stuff, space rock, coming in at a very fast rate, 60, 80, 100,000 miles an hour. As it moves through the atmosphere, it goes from solid to liquid to gas to plasma, explodes upon the surface of the Earth, doesn't leave a crater because uh, all, the, all the solid mass is, you know, has been turned into plasma. And it's superheated, and it just simply burns up, destroys what's Rain on the fire ground. from now, the sky at that point. Yeah. Now, now this is known. Tunguska, Siberia, right, 1908, right. very famous airburst event, event that toasted 2,500 square kilometers of Siberian forest in the blink of an eye. But the same thing happened in Chelyabinsk, Russia. Over That was a very high event. didn't kill anybody, but it was quite dramatic. Uh, Chelyabinsk, Russia, uh, airburst in 2013. Um, these are well-known, well-studied by scientists. And when they happen, here's the scary part. And by the way, the guys on the paper are not particularly people of faith. In fact, I'd say most of the scientists on this particular paper are not people of faith. And they've told me many times, we have no dog in that fight, Collins. We have no dog in that fight. We don't care about Sodom. We don't care about what we care about is what happens when an airburst hits a major civilization center. NASA is asking these guys all the time, okay, if one of these things hit Washington, D.C. or New York City or or Los Angeles, what would be the result? Well, the, the result would be if the same kind of thing hit any of those cities that hit Sodom, Tal al-Hammam, in the Bronze Age, it wouldn't exist anymore. Just like Sodom was wiped out, absolutely destroyed, the footprint of these kinds of events would absolutely level any city uh, in the world today, any size city in the world today. So NASA is very interested in that and this research that they're doing on our site. But there's a biblical flip side to this, Joel, and that is is that not only does Sodom and the cities of the plane exist exactly where the Bible says they existed in exactly the right time frame that they should exist, but they were destroyed, particularly Sodom itself. Tal Haman was actually destroyed by fire and burning stone from out of the sky, exactly as Genesis 19.28 says. That's it is remarkable. absolutely astonishing. And when you told me about this article, I went and I started to to read it for myself, and I think we should put it in the show notes, the link to it, so that people oh, can read sure. it for themselves. But I think what you're saying is for for this place that you're studying to be Sodom, it's got to check off a lot of boxes, right? And you have to start by having proof and logic, but mostly proof, that it can't be where Albright thought it was. And it is this specific site and some sort of cataclysmic destruction and real scientific evidence 
of a cataclysmic destruction of a specific ancient city. It couldn't have happened. I mean, it could have happened hundreds of years later or thousands of years earlier, but if it's Sodom, it has to be all these things at the exact same time. And to me, this is astonishing. Like it's astonishing, but it's also astonishing that it's not on the front page of the New York Times, not on the front page of the Washington Post, of the the front of Time and Newsweek. Like this is a huge story. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, over the years, it's interesting. Over the years, it has got a lot of press. In fact, Tal Hamam, its uh, connection to Sodom, has gotten actually more international press, uh, newspaper and magazine coverage than any other archaeological site in the 21st century. Now, a lot of people missed it. We were on the front page of the Wall Street Journal back in 2007. Wow, okay. wow. So, 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 so it has gotten out there. It just sort of, you know, it bumps and then it, and it dies and it bumps and it dies. But let me, let me say this. I want to make this yeah. very, very clear. I am interested in, I don't care where Sodom is located. I don't care anything about anything about that. Okay. All I care is about the facts. What are the textual facts? What are the physical facts on the ground? What are the geological facts on the ground? And that's what I'm interested in. And the more I look at the facts, and we deal with hard facts, science, archaeological excavation, proper testing, radiocarbon dates, I mean, everything that archaeology ought to do and should do, and everything that scientists ought to do and should do in investigating in a very systematic, scientific way, all of the elements of this story, all of that has been done, continues to be done. I'm not interested in speculation. I'm not interested in what anybody else has to say about its location or anything like that. All I'm interested in is the biblical facts. And here's the bottom line. Tal Hamam fits every biblical criterion for the city of Sodom, every single one, including the cosmic destruction, fire, and burning stone from out of the sky. That's the bottom line. If there's anybody else that wants to step up to the plate and give the same kind of evidence for another location, be my guest, but it's not going to happen. Tal Hamam is Sodom. That's the bottom line. We're 100% sure about that. And um, if it's not Sodom, then pray tell what is it. Make some points about implications. And I want then Carl to sort of draw out some other uh, key points as we start to land the plane, because this is so interesting. But Carl, you cited uh, Luke, I believe it was Luke 17, uh, yeah. right? It was the verse of the day, the passage of the day, in which the Lord Jesus Christ is deciding to reach back and of all the biblical stories that he could have mentioned sure. to, to say, because this happened, this is going to happen. Just like cataclysmic destruction came upon Sodom, as a judgment of sin when they would not repent. So the coming of the son of man will be that, that the righteous will be rescued, but those who will not repent will not turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and accept his free gift of of forgiveness and atonement for our sins will face cataclysmic destruction. Now, in a sense, I'm almost turning to Carl for this part of the conversation, but Stephen, you as well. This is interesting about Jesus because Jesus talks about Noah. He talks about Sodom. He talks about Adam and Eve. And, you know, if you were one of his advisors, we would be like, listen, not everybody believes that Adam and Eve really existed. We were sort of sort of sketchy on that part. And Noah and the ark and the two by two and the elephants, and the, like, that's not the most credible story in the Bible. And the cataclysmic destruction of a city that nobody really thinks actually happened, Jesus, you might want to choose some other material because you're going to damage your credibility. And isn't your credibility like the whole thing? Like, why are you talking about these things are the, the things that people say, well, that definitely didn't happen. Why would you bother? But he's not only saying that they happened, that they were real. He's saying, and it's going to be this, this it, the Noah story and the Sodom story are examples, almost small examples, of what's going to happen in the eschatological prophetic future when God decides to bring judgment. That is so important that as believers, we cannot write off, we dare not write off as fiction, as metaphor, as as, as an mm-hmm. allegory, what Jesus himself said. No, that happened, and it has implications for your life and the future. That's big. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Can I speak to that specifically? Here, here's the way I would style this. A long time ago, uh, decades ago, there was an auto oil filter commercial. I don't know if you remember. It says, you know, you now? can pay me. It was talking to the mechanic, right? You can pay me now, a little bit now, mm-hmm. or you can pay me later. And I think that's the way the world has to look at this. If the discovery of Sodom says 
to some people who have not been believers up to this point, if if they have that oops moment, oops, I was wrong. Uh, when you decide you're wrong, I think the oops moment you want to have is the one that you can have today, the one you can have now, because you're going to have one of two oops moments in your life. Oops, I was wrong now, and then I can fix it. I can get in line with Jesus and what the Bible has to say. Or I can have that oops moment later at the second coming, and it's too late. That's the oops moment you don't want. Oops, Mm -hmm. I was wrong, and it's too late. The oops moment that you want is now. Joel, this story is real. It's scientifically real. It actually happened. Now, people need to put that on their believometer and say, whoa, what am I personally? I love this. And, I, and I'll, I'll pitch you to you, Carl. I just I just one last just one last uh, insert, which is I think this is not only important for pastors to hear all believers, but youth pastors, Sunday school teachers. I really think, you know, this is a story that has to get shared with our kids because many young evangelicals, young you know, or at least children and young, uh, you know, grandchildren of, of of believers, they're starting to lose their belief that any of this is real. And I think it's important. To, let's lean into it. Yeah, science reinforces our biblical beliefs. It doesn't lead us out. And science and archaeology and doesn't lead us away from the Bible. The more we dig out of the ground, the more we study, the more we realize the Bible is actually true. So this is not just an interesting story for those of us who already believe. <laughs> this is right. important apologetic material for young people. I mean, it could be older people too, but particularly young people. Carl, you're, you've got a PhD in education. I mean, this seems <laughs> like something we've got to help the church lean into. Yeah. One of the things about education is, you know, you want, you want theory to be backed up by practice. You want, you want facts and examples to uh, validate what you talk about theoretically. And I, and I think Joel, there's a real parallel too, to a lot of what we've talked about before in terms of your analysis of, of passages of scripture, like in Ezekiel about the prophecies of, of Israel's restoration and the, the war of Gog and Magog. And, you know, the, the, the elements of scripture that have uh, led us to conclude that Yeshua is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah because all of these points of Scripture line up and they authenticate his identity. And I love, Dr. Collins, the way you've taken the scientific data. You've, you've, you've kind of laid out a flat, clean table and said, okay, let's start putting on the table all of the scientific archaeological evidences that make for an interesting archaeological discovery. And, you know, talked about the the scientists who come in and look at the astrophysical elements of, you know, of a meteorite type event with plasma and all of those things. But you align them all so well, all of a sudden, uh, like an analogy that Joel says uh, a lot, it's like a phone number, an area code and then a local uh, number and then your specific number. You start adding all those numbers together and it's like, this couldn't be anything but Sodom. And so if that's the case, and I think you'd, you'd agree, then what do we do now? What should we say about the rest of Scripture? And maybe, to Joel's point, what Jesus is saying about his return, if things are like they were in Sodom and Gomorrah in the time of Lot, and God brought this judgment on, Jesus said, it's going to be like the time of Sodom and Gomorrah when the Son of Man returns. And all of these things will be taking place, and then this will take place. So let me ask you just from from where you sit, you know, with with the dirt on your hands from the archaeological dig and the and you know the the opportunity to look at this at a from a 50,000 foot, what would you say to people to say how does this help our faith and what would we do now with a world that's maybe skeptical of anything Christian? Yeah. Wow. As you were talking, Carl, I was thinking you know, Jesus presents it by his own blood and by, you know, by his own sacrifice and his resurrection from the dead. He presents himself gently and sweetly to every person. You know, Jesus wants to embrace with his salvation every person. And uh, so when Jesus came the first time, he came as our redeemer. He's the sweetheart. You know, he, he comes and he embraces us. But when he comes a second time, he's coming with fire in his eyes. Yeah. And to me, that just, you, you want to deal with him the first time around, and we're still on the first time around. You want to deal with him then, now. You don't want to have to deal with him 
then. Because the next time he shows up, he's coming in judgment. The Bible describes it as as fire and as destruction upon the earth. And, you know, the Bible is very, was very clear, by the way. Ezekiel 16, everybody ought to check that out, right? If you want to know from God's, God's mouth to our ear why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, I destroyed them because they were wealthy, overfed, arrogant, and did not take care of the widow and the orphan, and did detestable things in my sight. And of course, under that category, detestable, you can put all kinds of stuff. But the fact is, is that what he, what God describes in Ezekiel 16 as the reason for his destruction of Sodom looks an awful lot like Western civilization, looks an awful lot like the USA, looks an awful lot like the world today, because um, we're mm. not doing the things we ought to be doing, and we're doing a lot of stuff we shouldn't be doing, and God has a line drawn, and the Bible says that the world will cross that line. And once we cross that line, then uh, the salvation offered uh, on Jesus' first go uh, is going to go away. And he's the, Yeah, there is a day of reckoning. If we don't talk as believers, as, as Bible believers, as followers of Christ about the day of reckoning, about the fact that there is a point at which if you really just keep consistently rejecting the good news, then there is horrible news. You can't have good news unless it's contrasted against horrible news. And the good news is the free gift of offer of forgiveness and, and, and salvation and atonement for our sins and then adoption into God's family. That's good. It's in fact, it's great. But if we, if we say no, there, there is a flip side. It's not like, Oh, that's too bad. You, you could have had, you know, $5 off your, your purchase of, uh, groceries, but you didn't use the coupon. Okay, well, then just pay more. No, no, this is pay forever in hell with no way of escape. And uh, that's a scary place to be. And I think I'll just add this one other element, which is it's not politically correct in our day and age to say it, but but uh, sexual sin has a consequence, as all sin does, and homosexual sin is part of it. It's not that we hate people who commit any sins. We all are coming out of some sort of sins and we still struggle with sin, even though we're forgiven as followers of Jesus Christ. But the homosexuality that was rampant in Sodom took the other sins and put it over the top. And and there was a, and, and the unwillingness to listen to God, to go to Lot, who was a righteous person and say, you seem to know the true God. Could you tell us what should we do? They didn't want to hear it. And it is interesting that the two things that the world most resists when it comes to the Bible, one is Noah and the ark, which is a story of the whole world rejecting what Noah had to say on behalf of God. And then God saying, then we're not going any further. There is a point of no return. And the other is, is Sodom and Gomorrah. And like, you're not listening. There is a consequence. And we're at that point. And, and it, you know, it, it's sad to me, but I'll, I'll say this and I'll give Carl, the last word, it's sad to me that the homosexual movement, it's not the only problem, right? We've got heterosexual sin, divorce, abuse, murder, the murder of unborn children. Like, we've got a lot of problems. But but I just look at the homosexual community, the gay rights community, and they have chosen two things as their mantra, as their symbols. They've chosen the rainbow as their symbol. Where does the rainbow come from? It comes from the Noah's Ark story. And so, so they're choosing, we're not going to listen to God. And we're going to choose him saying that I'm not going to destroy the world by flood. That's what the rainbow symbolizes to the world, according to the Bible. But they're still choosing that as, okay, this is our symbol. And then they're choosing to reject the whole concept of Sodom. It doesn't exist. Sodomy, we don't have to go all through the whole story. But the point is, these are two things that the Bible says, right, I'm not going to judge with water next time. I'm going to judge with fire, like I did with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the only thing we can do to be honest and fair with people is let them know there is good news, but these two stories, which Jesus spoke of, these are the stories of what happens when people say, not only no, but hell no. Uh, There is a terrible consequence. And we, as people of love and compassion, don't want people to to experience this. And that's why we do what we do. Carl, um, I was just going to say, Dr. Collins, I'd, I'd love to give you the last word here as we have to wrap, but, uh, and, and, and want to just get your perspective, but I just want to say about what Joel just brought up there. You know, a lot of times we talk about the, uh, I mean, and the gospel is full of hope. The gospel is a gospel that is freely available now for everyone, but this, this coming judgment is also part of the message, if you will, of the gospel, that it has to be said that if people don't at this moment, choose freely the love and, and, and offer of, of, uh, eternal life through Jesus Christ, 
then the reality is history has shown and prophecy predicts that this will happen again. And this will be a a, a terrible judgment on those that uh, have rejected this message. But uh, Dr. Collins, I want to thank you before we wrap, uh, but I want to give you any last words to kind of leave us. I'm, I'm still just in awe that you were able to find this site and find so much there. What words would you say to us in this moment that can leave us with a, with a sense of, uh, of what God would want to do through this great scientific discovery, including including your book, which is important. Including which a mention, book, and we haven't even mentioned the yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, we have a little book out there uh, published by Simon and Schuster called "Discovering the City of Sodom." You can That'll be in the show notes, Amazon, of course. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Let me, but let me let let me close my my thoughts like this. The biblical way to look at this is that morality is a divine prescription. It's prescriptive. God determines what the right course of action is for every human being, and he's done that uh, in the Bible. And that, by the way, will preserve uh, individuals and, and civilizations and, and culture, all right? That's how the, the Bible set it up. That's how God set it up. If and when morality ever becomes personal and subjective, where everybody can do whatever they want, however they want, do whatever they feel, that is the prescription for the destruction of the world for the destruction of families, for the destruction of society, for the destruction of civilization, for the destruction of the world. That's the message of Sodom, that people don't get to do whatever they want to do. They either stick with the divine prescription for morality as set by the creator God of this universe, or eventually his judgment will come. Well, we're we're going to leave it there, but uh, Dr. Collins, thank you so much. And Joel, thank you so much for, for your great questions and your great insights uh, biblically. And as we've, this is our first foray into archaeology, but uh, we're, we're very grateful for uh, this insight. And uh, and as as we've mentioned to our listeners, all of what you've heard today, the, the, the background of, of this entire archaeological work and Dr. Collins' book are all available in our show notes. So if you'd like to learn more about the Joshua Fund, you can visit our website at joshuafund.com. And there you can learn about the kinds of work and projects that we're doing in the Middle East to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. And as I mentioned, the show notes will contain anything you heard on the podcast you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg, the whole Joshua Fund team, thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter. Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg, founder and chairman of the Joshua Fund, and I've got exciting news. In 2023, I'm inviting you, on behalf of our entire board and staff, to come to the Holy Land, to come to Israel on the next Prayer and Vision Tour. This is the 75th anniversary of the prophetic rebirth of the modern state of Israel back in 1948. And what is God doing here? It's amazing, spiritually, economically, in so many ways. There's been so much growth, so much progress, but the best is yet to come. And we want you to see it. We want you to walk where Jesus walked. We want you to see where the apostles ministered. We want you to see where people's lives were transformed by the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We want you to see this city where Jesus died and rose again and where he's coming back, I hope soon. But in the meantime, come to Israel with the Joshua Fund. You can learn more about the trip, the itinerary, the cost, all the details at joshuafund.com. But sign up quickly because I think this thing is going to fill up fast. The Prayer and Vision Tour of Israel in the fall of 2023. I hope to see you there. Looking for ways to stay positive? Brighten your day with the free story behind podcast. Hear weekly short stories that showcase true joy, love, and hope. Listen now at lifeaudio.com or by searching for Story Behind wherever you get your podcasts.